1: They
0: are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the
1: integrity. Everything you do is well done.
2: You guys do a great job. We love it. What
1: can we say? He's Chris Mannix.
2: He's employed by Sports Illustrated.
1: The
3: announcer's got it in for
1: me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. If you have a problem with it, build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh,
3: thank God. Thank God. Chris Mannix. Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back to the Crossover NBA Podcast. Glad you could join me on what I think is the very first podcast of 2020. Uh, we had, had one last week. I'm not sure when it posted, but we recorded it before the holidays. But this is the first live and immediate version of the Crossover Pod. Thanks to everybody for listening all throughout 2019. Thanks for everybody for subscribing and, of course, for rating the podcast, reviewing it. It is tremendously helpful when you do that so get over to apple podcast post that comment leave a rating uh it's simple it's very easy it's of course free and it is the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week all right joining me in studio this week a true friend of the podcast you heard him on the last episode uh, talking about the nba draft and he's back to talk all things nba sinba draft analyst nba reporter all things basketball, Jeremy Wu. What's up, Jeremy?
4: Hey, man. I'm I'm just honored to be the first guest of the decade here. Uh, all is well. Yeah.
3: Allegedly, the decade. <laughs> I don't know if, if 2020 or 2021. It just is is always confusing. But we'll uh, we'll let that pitch go by uh, for the moment. Um, <laughs> a lot I want to get into with you, Jeremy, and I want to start in Cleveland. There's a couple of topics there I want to hit on right off the back, and the first is the most pressing news of the week and that's the report that john beeline the head coach at uh in cleveland first year came over from the university of michigan after a film session uh earlier this week uh beeline apparently said to his players that you are not playing no longer playing like a bunch of thugs that of course has a lot of racial connotations a racial tone there uh, players, according to ESPN, were bewildered by Beeline's comments. Now, he later backtracked and said he meant to say a bunch of slugs. You're no longer playing like a bunch of slugs. Now, I've got my thoughts on all this, but let me get your reaction, too, to th- this this controversy involving John Beeline of the Cavs.
4: Yeah, it's a little little baffling. I got that push notification on my phone, like I'm sure 99% of people did. And, and uh, yeah, I was like, what? You know, Be- Beeline, because, you know, he- he's pretty well-respected – uh, definitely, you know, during his time in college, you know, I covered his his Michigan teams uh, over the last few years too, uh, or in the tournament time, and uh, you know, definitely a well-respected guy. You know, obviously, this season has not gone according to plan in Cleveland. I don't know what the expectations really were as far as being competitive, but at the same time, uh, there have been multiple occasions where it feels like it just like it's a you know a rock slide. It keeps getting worse, and um, you know, I, I don't want to read too far into you know what he said and why I said it and whatnot, because I think, you know, that's sort of, at this point, the facts are there, you know, it's open for interpretation, um, but uh, I, I think it is indicative of just sort of the way their season is going uh, and sort of the state of things, um, you know, I think if, you know, cl- clearly it's been a situation where, you know, the players have not been happy with him, uh, you know, I think dating back to, you know, it's at Summer League, you know, they were going two-a-days and you know, not really, you know, it's a college-style practices, uh, you know, in the pros isn't, isn't great. Uh, I, b- I believe, you know, Dylan Windler, one of their draft picks, got, got hurt at Summer League and hasn't played yet this season. Um, so, you know, I think that there's been some, you know, frustration with line up and down uh, in, in that locker room. And, uh, you know, bottom line, I think if there was, a you know, maybe a greater degree of trust, it, you know, something like this happens and a coach slips up, maybe it doesn't leak to the media right away, right? So I think just the fact that it made it out as quickly as it did uh, probably speaks to just sort of the state of disarray in Cleveland.
3: Oh, everything's coming out of Cleveland you know, very quickly. Everything bad seems to be getting out into the public very quickly. On the comments he made, I mean, I don't know John Beeline. I didn't cover him when he was in college, and obviously there's not been a lot of reasons to cover Cavs games uh, and cover that team this year, so I don't really know him at all. But that I can tell you from talking to a number of people across the league, there's not a lot of people that buy this excuse that he meant to say a bunch of slugs. I don't know if you saw it, but Marcus Thompson, who covers the Warriors out in San Francisco, he actually asked Steve Kerr after the game uh, recently, after this whole story came out, if he thought his team you know, didn't play like a bunch of slugs. And Steve didn't know about what Beeline said at the time. And it's kind of looking at Marcus like, who, who talks like that? And that's that was kind of my reaction. Like, who talks like that? Who says you're playing like a bunch of slugs? I mean... Most people I talked to in the NBA think he said what he meant to say and didn't realize the kind of reaction that he was going to get. I had one GM say to me that, you know, that kind of comment is the kind of thing you can get away with saying to like eighteen, nineteen-year-old college players. You can't get away with that in the NBA. And I had a couple other GMs say to me like that. This just made it worse. Like him trying to, to say he said meant to say something else just makes it worse. He might have been better off just kind of falling on his sword, saying, "Look, I didn't." I didn't mean it in that way. It, it came out wrong. I apologize. I hope we can all move on. But to your kind of greater point, this really is just like another log on the Beeline fire that's underneath them. There are college coaches that just aren't cut out to be NBA coaches. We have seen it happen time and time again. Whether it was John Calipari or Rick Pitino, or you know, I had one GM recently say that he sees a lot of comparisons to Beeline's tenure to what we saw from Mike Montgomery in the 1990s. Mike Montgomery came from Stanford, lasted just two years in Golden State, and never came back to the NBA again. Beeline was 66 years old when he took this job in Cleveland. He had no pro experience whatsoever. That was a baffling hire at the time, and everything we've seen this season continues to to make me believe it was the wrong hire for this team. Now, I don't think the Cavaliers did him any favors by giving him a team of mixed uh, players in terms of where they are in their careers. You've got the Colin Sextons and the Darius Garlands on one end, and on the other end you've got the Kevin Loves and the Tristan Thompsons and even the Chetty Osmans who have played deep in the playoffs and into finals over the last few years. I, I think the mix was bad from the start, but the kind of practices you're alluding to, I've heard from players and player agents out in Cleveland that he is running these long practices these long film sessions, and that just doesn't fly in the NBA. You can't do that over an 82-game season and expect to keep these players you know, as connected as they need to be. So, you know, look, he's, I don't think he gets fired over this, but it wouldn't surprise me at the end of the season to either see this roster change completely or for John Beeline to be gone.
4: Yeah, and, you know, they, they tied up so much money in that hire, too. Uh, and, and, you know, he's older. I think this was supposed to be sort of his last last job you know as, as far as I understand it before retiring and you know getting out of college uh you know I, I do think that he probably had you know built up some frustration with with the college game uh you know the way things were changing there so uh it, it was kind of a, a weird hire at the time I mean I, I was somewhat optimistic just because he's such a good x's and o's guy but uh, again yeah the history of you know college guys making successful transitions uh, to the NBA uh, it's difficult and you know, a lot of the time these guys who are making this jump, you know, you see their personality and their sort of their teaching style, and it's it's definitely sort of the more, like, old-school, hands-on type of guy. You know, like you said, you know, you can't get away with saying the same stuff in terms of, you know, expressing yourself in the locker room. I think that definitely holds true. You know, I do wonder, you know, about the hire, you know, how much of it, you know, in Cleveland there's a history of, you know, ownership having a hand in, you know, XYZ decision-making, and, you know, you do wonder... You know, as far as that hire is concerned, you know, was that you know did Dan Gilbert have a hire in that? You know, there there were rumors tying uh, Tom Izzo to the Cavs job for years. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it does all kind of point to you know it's a team that's sort of being pulled in two different directions. And uh, you know, Kevin Love in particular, I think, um, will be the guy to watch. You know, what happens with him, uh, but even after that, just you know how much patience there is in the locker room, and uh, you know whether it can get worse from here.
3: Yeah, and look, the the only way I think to salvage this season and to maybe salvage Beeline as an NBA coach is to clear the decks before the trade deadline, to move Kevin Love to Miami or Portland or another team that might be interested in him and get him off the roster, to move or buy out Tristan Thompson and get him off the roster so you really do have... You know, the majority of that roster will be these guys that are under the age of twenty five, the type of guys that Beeline is used to coaching. Now I don't know if that even if I don't even know if that will work. I mean, i was I was working in Boston, Jeremy, when Rick Patino came in to coach the Celtics, and he basically took over the pro version of Kentucky. I mean, he had Antoine Walker there. He had Walter McCarty there. He had Tony Delk there. And it didn't work because Patino didn't have the kind of personality you need to have to be an NBA coach. That could just be the case with b where he's kind of stuck in his ways, isn't going to change, and that isn't going to fly in the NBA. But he does have, as you mentioned, a big contract. you got to give these guys big contracts to get them out of college. I'm interested to hear you say you had some optimism, though, before all this, that Beeline could work out. I, I didn't really. I saw a guy that had been a lifetime college coach, and he was obviously a good college coach, but the kind of coaches I think that might be successful in the NBA – Are more Brad Stevens types, like the younger type, like Tony Bennett down in Virginia. That's someone that wouldn't surprise me if he worked in the NBA. I never saw Beeline as the right fit for a team, no matter how young it was.
4: Yeah, and I think some of that was just tied to, um, you know, I think just the recent success of the Michigan teams in terms of like sort of getting more out of those guys, and you know, they did have success, uh, you know, developing a lot of you know NBA guys who got drafted, uh, you know, in his time there. So I think, you know, from from that aspect of it um you know i I guess i I was curious to see how it worked at the the same time but then you see the types of you know guys they were drafting and putting in there you know i do think that was also sort of worth questioning uh you know they've sort of stacked guards on guards uh a lot of younger guys who haven't been uh you know coached a lot uh have not had um you know a ton of time to sort of develop as part of a team concept you know guys are fitting into the league you know you have you know, guys like Sexton and Kevin Porter, too, who are, you know, guys who look for their own shot. You know, these are they, that's what they do. And so, you know, I knew it would be a challenge, um, but I also, I guess I didn't expect it to be this much of a uh, total crash and burn situation. So,
3: Yeah, look, all I would suggest to general managers, and most know this, like, you know, just because a coach can develop guys into NBA players does not make them... NBA ready coaches. I mean, one of the best at doing that is John Calipari. Like at Kentucky, Calipari is a pro factory, just producing guy after guy. And know, I've talked to GMs who say that you know it's great seeing you know 18 year olds get into the Calipari program because he gets them pro ready. But as we saw, Calipari not a great NBA coach. So I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how this ends well for John Beeline in Cleveland. He can get past this current incident, maybe, but. I just don't know if if he's really an NBA type of coach. Uh, the Beeline incident, Jeremy, overshadowed the last incident in Cleveland, which involved Kevin Love and an outburst Kevin Love had on the bench. He was apparently fined by the Cavaliers a thousand bucks. I don't know how you, why you fine an NBA player a thousand dollars. Like what what is that? Like, what, <laughs> what, what are you doing for a guy that's making like thirty million dollars a year? You're going to find him a thousand bucks? What's the whole point of that? Uh, Kevin later on apparently had some kind of altercation. Uh, or at least exchange with Kobe Altman, the general manager in Cleveland. Look, Kevin wants out. I don't think there's any question about that. He's difficult to trade because that contract is not great now, and the perception amongst teams I talk to is that it's just going to get worse as he gets into his early to mid-30s. He's 31 right now, but with two and a half years left on that deal, or I think it's two and a half years left on that deal, with so much time left on the deal... It's just going to it's it's going to become a bad deal at some point down the line. What was your reaction, I guess, to to Kevin Love's you know tough week the last week?
4: Yeah, I mean, it sucks. It sucks to see that uh, no matter who it is, and you know Kevin's uh you know he's an emotional guy. I mean, I understand his frustration for sure. Um, you know, I, I I hesitate to be the guy who was like, well, you know, why didn't why did you resign then? You know, you could have gone wherever you wanted. But I mean, like. You know, I mean, he got, you know, it's life-changing money on that contract. I mean, that's a huge contract. Like, it's hard to say no to that, right? So, so I get why he resigned. At the same time, you know, he is a veteran. I think there has to be some expectation that you got to at least be able to hand yourself, handle yourself a little bit better than that. Um, and, again, I think it just points to the whole situation being as messy as it is, uh, that something like that could happen that it would drive him that far. You know, he's pretty, you know, a professional guy most of the time and, you um, but it's certainly a tough situation. And I don't know if this is going to make him easier or harder to trade. Um, like, will it drive the market down? You know, like the teams are going to, you know, if the Cavs are really desperate to get off that money, you know, they're not going to, will they be able to get a ton for him? I don't think so. Uh, so it's going to be kind of interesting uh, if they're actually able to offload him and how much they can actually get just because of sort of the way that this has unfolded.
3: Yeah. Look, I've seen the, the arguments that Kevin Love signed that extension, he signed the extension after LeBron left, so he knew what he was getting into uh, with the Cavaliers in the future. And there's some merit to that, you know. I, if you're Kevin Love though, and you've had a history of injuries, and somebody's handing you a four-year, hundred twenty million dollar guarantee on an extension, you have to take it. I mean, there's there's really no two ways about it. And I, I guess that does. You know, you have to think about that when it comes to the complaining and, and the frustration. You did sign up for all that. All that being said, he did sign on to a team that was being coached by Tyron Lue. He was told that the Cavs were going to try to be competitive. Now, that may have been kind of pie in the sky, but things changed very quickly in Cleveland in that first season post-LeBron. Ty Lue was fired like two weeks into the season and everything sort of changed from there. So you can certainly argue that the Cavaliers were less than honest with Kevin Love about the direction that, that they were going to take the team. Now mm-hmm. I do think he has trade value. Um, I think the Cavaliers have to accept the reality that they're going to get nothing back, but expiring contracts for Kevin Love. I think Miami is a team that would happily take him on. That's a team that loves stars and Kevin Love still has some star power. And I think Miami would take Kevin on and pair him with Jimmy Butler and Kendrick Nunn and some of the good players they have down there they'd give up, you know, the Kelly Olynyk contract, the Goran Dragić contract to get a deal like that done. I think that's certainly possible. The team I watch though is Portland. I've been writing about this for a couple of weeks now. The Blazers, I mean they're pretty bad. I mean they they pulled the they pressed the Carmelo Anthony emergency button uh, a little while back. That's been, you know, okay. He he won the game against Toronto with a big shot, but He's not really moving the needle all that much. Kevin loves the type of guy that, that you roll the dice on and hope that his game meshes with Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum and you find you know, some chemistry with those three guys over the next few years when Zach Collins comes back, when Yusuf Nurkic comes back. Uh, I think that can make some sense. The argument against that deal is if you're Portland, you don't want to give up cap flexibility. But, I mean, let's be honest, Jeremy. Like, was the last free agent to go to Portland? Like the free agency class stinks anyway next summer. What are they going to do? Acquire somebody? Like I I just I I think that if you're a Blazers fan and you're sitting back thinking that you know we're going to have this flexibility and we're going to get the guy we want to pair next to Lillard and McCollum, I think you're dreaming. I I don't think that guy's out there. And I think Kevin Love, while not being a perfect answer, at least upgrades your team and gets you back into that playoff mix.
4: Yeah, I I think in terms of fit. On both ends, uh, I mean, that is the team that, to me, makes the most sense. Uh, you know, notwithstanding him being from there helps, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if you do get him and you— know, You know, I would
3: say I would say this real quick. Yeah. Like, I don't know that him being from there helps that much. I'm not sure—there are a lot of guys that don't want to go home. I mean, you saw Kevin Durant didn't want to go back to D.C. and, you know, that area. Uh, some guys do, of course, LeBron being the biggest name of that bunch— I think Kevin Love is more of a Kevin Durant type. I, I don't know that, from what my understanding of it, I don't think he's he's all that you know enamored with the idea of going mm. back to to Portland for, on a personal level.
4: Right. Well, he's not going to have a choice at this point. <laughs> I mean, yeah. right. I mean, if, you know, if he wants out, he's not going to get to pick his destination here. Uh, but I mean, yeah. Point being, I mean, I do think it's a fit though. I mean, if you, you know, Lillard, McCollum, and Love, I mean, that's three really good jump shooters, and you know, with the way. Teams win now, uh, you know. While defensively, you're going to have a lot of problems with if you have those three guys in the court closing games. Um, you know, you're going to be potent offensively. You're going to put up a lot of points. Uh, you know, when Zach Collins comes back healthy, uh, you know he is a fit with with Love in terms of what he can do defensively. Uh, so you know, I don't I don't think it's the worst gambit for for Portland. Uh, and they've kind of played themselves into a corner too, roster wise. They've had bad injury luck as well. Uh, you know, financially, obviously, you know, having Lillard, McCollum, and Love all on max and max max deals, right? I mean, you're stuck. Uh, but you could argue right now they're kind of stuck too. So, you know, I can see that being a fit. Um, if I'm Cleveland, like if someone will give me just like a fake first, like a protected first that has a chance of being a, you know, 20 to 30 at some point in the next three years. I mean, like that is, you know, probably enough if, if I can get any type of first-round pick. Um you know, in addition to expirings, just to get out of it, I think at this point you just do it because they they got to just try to sort of get the environment back to a place where it's conducive for these young guys getting better. Uh, you know, whether they and invest, I think if, right? If,
3: yeah. If you're Cleveland, Jeremy, you you got to move him while he's healthy too. I mean, right. he's got an injury history. Like he's one like you know hand injury or foot injury or knee injury away from being untradable at this point. So as long as he's viable as a player. You got to move him. Now, Portland, I can see them giving like a a highly protected first round pick. So like you can win the press conference by saying we got a first for Kevin Love. But the reality is it'll probably be like, you know, two number twos over the course of the next few years. But if you get like Asan Whiteside and or, or even Kent Bazemore or some one of those types that'll expire after the year. You got I I'm with you got to do it. You you got to pull the trigger and get Kevin Love off that roster cuz I don't think he's helping anybody with that group. And Tristan Thompson same thing. Like I think Thompson is obviously just much easier to buy out at the end of the uh, at the end of the trade deadline just say all right, you know, if nobody will give you anything for him, just wave him and 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 be done with that. But those two guys think if 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 you're going to try to get any kind of positive momentum, you got to move them off the roster before the end of the season.
4: Yeah, I agree. And if if only to just make it a better environment for these younger guys to, you know, to get it get it going. I mean, whether or not they're the right guys to build with is a different question, but you got to at least try. And, you know, Thompson is, you know, 28. I mean, it's not like he's totally untradeable. Uh, At least he's on an expiring. You know, maybe there is value in that. Like, maybe you get something for him. I actually think he might be easier to move than love uh, in the short term.
3: Yeah. Yeah, he could be. He could be. And there's a number of teams out there that would love to get their hands on him. The Clippers, the Celtics, uh, maybe the Raptors. um, Tristan Thompson's from there. uh, So that might be a fit for, for Toronto. I think that he's he is he's a valuable guy as we head toward the trade deadline.
5: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why and what it all means.
3: All right, let's talk about Philadelphia for a second. The 76ers came into the season, huge expectations. Uh, Al Horford signs there. They get Josh Richardson back in exchange for Jimmy Butler. Uh, But this season has not gone particularly well for Philadelphia. They did snap a four-game losing streak uh, with a win recently, but the problems they're having out there are fairly predictable. They're having problems with their shooting, the mix of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, is still questionable. When you watch Philadelphia, I mean, we're, are, are these problems the kind of things that anyone could have foreseen or are you seeing more than that?
4: Yeah, it, it's a little concerning for sure. Uh, I mean, you know, you look at what, what they're doing. I mean, they're still, I think, like 17-2 and two at home or something. Like, it's not like the team is broken. It is a weird phase. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think these are questions that people have had about the fit for a while uh, with, with, with Embiid and Simmons and I think it is starting to manifest. I mean, Simmons not shooting threes at all, not making himself a threat, is, is not at a great fit in terms of spacing. Um, you know, I mean, when you really boil it down, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to build around a center as your best player with the way the NBA is being played right now. It's also very difficult to, you know, play with a serious non-shooter on the floor all the time. Uh, and even if you start those minutes, I mean, you've still got one of those two guys on the floor all the time now. Embiid, obviously, is a special case. Like, you want to believe that he is the type of talent you can sort of make it work with, and I do think that in you know the perfect team around him, yeah, I think you can go to the finals with Joel with Joel Embiid for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I you do start to think if it doesn't work out this season, uh, you know, Simmons is obviously a guy who's going to be valuable in trade. I think you would prefer to, you know, move him to to Embiid, who uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, is the better, uh, better player. I think to build around, um, but they're they're sort of starting to hit that tip of the iceberg where it's going to get uncomfortable, uh, you know, if they don't turn it around here.
3: Yeah, I think one... Look, the Sixers are the one team that can salvage their season just because the way they defend. They're, they're the team that can beat you on defense alone in some games. If they're totally locked in from, you know, from MB to Horford to Richardson to Simmons. I mean, they have some great defenders. Tybull is a great on-ball defender, ball-hawking type of guy. I mean, they... They can lock you down when they want to. But what's interesting watching them now is that everyone from the top of the organization on down is all but begging Ben Simmons to shoot three-pointers, and he won't do it. Like I was there on Christmas Day, and Elton Brand had a uh, press conference there, and he effectively said, we need Ben Simmons to shoot threes now, because if he doesn't shoot threes in the regular season, you know he's not going to do it in the playoffs. Brett Brown wants him shooting at least one three per game. You had Joel Embiid sort of passive-aggressively saying that, you know, we need guys to step outside their comfort zone and do different things. That, you know, felt to a lot of people like a direct shot at Ben Simmons. I can't understand it, Jeremy, why he doesn't just toss shots up there. I mean, is he that concerned about missing and how it might look and how bad he might miss? Like, Philadelphia genuinely right now does not care if he goes 0 for 5 every single game. They just need him to shoot it, and over the course of the next three months, develop into enough of a threat that teams have to guard him. They can't just stick somebody on him and have that player play all the way with one foot inside the paint. And he won't do it. Like, it's amazing. This guy's having an all-star year. He is a great point guard. He is a great defender. He is a great playmaker. But his unwillingness to shoot... You know could wind up being the thing that causes that cost them a series and that series could be in the first round like you give a smart team with a smart defense a chance to kind of really dig in just on the sixers and they'll find ways to exploit bed Simmons and that could be the end of Philadelphia in the playoffs I mean this is a this is a real serious issue the sixers have to deal with
4: yeah and and you know it happened last year in the playoffs too um I mean and it, at some point like even if I mean look regardless of this situation I mean they're still probably another guard, at least, away from, you know, really having a legit playoff rotation. You know, they've kind of piecemealed together, uh, you know, their bench. um, You know, Tybalt is promising, but... Maybe not consistent enough that you really want him out there a lot in the playoffs. I mean, you know, James Ennis, Mike Scott. They don't really want to you know, trade anybody like,
3: though. Like they, I mean, yeah, they, they, they'll probably trade Zaire Smith, but they don't want to trade anybody. They I mean, don't. Have, they don't have a lot of flexibility, they, right? They're they're yeah. in the same position Boston's in. Like Boston doesn't have anybody to trade either, unless they break up their core. That that's the problem Philadelphia faces the next couple of weeks.
4: Yep, and the buyout market's going to be interesting too because a lot of the teams are sort of in that same position. Where they're they're not flexible. You know, it's going to be you know competitive. Uh, trying to just find, you know, whatever's out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is for them. Because, yeah, I mean, when, you're, when your cap is constructed, you know, the way they have, have it constructed, it's, it, like you said, it's it's just, it's so hard to, you know, make major changes without really disrupting what you have in place. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the next couple weeks are going to be telling, um, you know, whether they do adjust, uh, you know, they're going to get Tywell back, which will help, I think. But, um, there's there's just something off right now with, with that everything going on there. Uh, and I, I, if I were a Philly fan, I would at least be like on yellow alert. Do you think that? I mean, look,
3: if this season ends with like let's say a second round playoff exit, is that enough evidence that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid can't work over the long term, or is it? Are they? Do you think they're still in a situation where you can? Tweak around the fringes, add another shooter, try to draft well, and pick up a shooter there. I don't know who that guy would be, but you know, do something along those lines. Or is it? Do, do you do you think they look at it like they're fundamentally flawed and they have to make a substantial tra- uh, trade?
4: I think they're going to have to do something just because of. I mean, they have so much long-term money tied up now. Um, you know, with you know Embiid, uh, you know Horford is now through twenty-two. Also, you know Harris is through twenty-three. You know, Simmons' new deal is going to kick in next year, so it's like they got to do something. Uh, If it doesn't fit, you know, one of those guys is going to have to move. Uh, I think in terms of trade value, I mean, Simmons is the guy who, you know, you'll be able to get real stuff for from someone. And I think, you know, for a lot of teams, you know, just having a chance to sort of start from scratch with him as a piece, you kind of have more options as far as what you can do to, you know, work around those weaknesses, right? Now, whether or not it ends up being viable is a different question, but, uh, you know, you do have to wonder – you know, what the best course of action is, and I don't think they can afford to just, like, keep running it back with these guys if it doesn't work. And, you know, again, I mean, the last you couple years a, have shown that. I mean, they're willing to switch it up and do do different things, so.
3: You, you know what's a crazy trade that that I would I would love to see Philadelphia explore, and that's looking at Golden State for, like, a Simmons-Russell plus that lottery pick type of swap. You know, Russell, not the player Ben Simmons is, but he's certainly he's a point guard, he can score, he's a shooter— and if that pick is inside the top five, you give yourself another chance to add a high-level lottery talent that makes sense around you know, Embiid, Horford, and the guys you have signed there long-term. And if you're Golden State, I mean, how good would Simmons be with Curry and Thompson? Like, you've got enough shooting. You don't have to worry about Simmons shooting problems. And Simmons, as a ball handler and a defender, takes a lot of pressure off of, you know, it's Curry as a ball handler and Thompson on the defensive side of the floor. I, I, I love that deal for both teams. If if that lottery pick is high enough,
4: yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think if that happens, like if, if that were to somehow happen, I mean, Draymond would have will have to go though. Like, you cannot. There's no way you could play him and Simmons at the same time. That would not work. Uh, like, just that would screw up everything. Those guys sort of mm-hmm. occupy the same spaces now. But if you do, if you can get something for Draymond and you just bring in Simmons and be like, hey, you do the new Draymond role. I mean, that's something that he could excel at, really, if you think about it. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could. I could even see though them
3: coexisting. To a degree, I mean, neither one of them are shooters, but in like a smallish lineup with Draymond at five and Simmons as kind of the quasi three slash. One. I don't know. It's, I don't know. I mean, it, it certainly would get a little sticky there if neither one of them can make shots. But there's so much shooting already with with Curry and Thompson. Maybe add somebody else, some kind of floor spacing big uh, into that mix as well. It's interesting to think about. It. That's just it is. one. Yeah, it's more about for me. This conversation is more about Philadelphia and and right. This, no, for sure. I'm, I'm just saying this might be it for yeah. them.
4: No, no, definitely. I mean, a, and, uh, you know, I think that ownership group is willing to shake things up. You know, they've done it before, you know, the Horford thing. I mean, like, whether or not – that I mean, I don't know if you can really say that, that was a great idea, but, um, you know, they, they're willing to spend. They're willing to try stuff. And I, I think they understand, too. I mean, with Embiid, with you know, they do have a window here, uh, you know, to do something. Um, and, you know, they've been able to mostly keep them on the floor. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think they would be justified, too, in, in experimenting. But... um, you, know, you can't say they didn't try it, right? Like, if they do end up breaking it up. I mean, they've, they've invested time into it, invested money into it, and, you know, um, it, they are definitely one of the teams that will be interesting this offseason, especially in a year where there are not a lot of, you know, f- team-changing free agents available. Uh, you know, I think the trade market for guys like that who are, you know, star-caliber guys on, you know, with years in their deal, I mean, you can get a lot for a guy like that uh, in off offseason like this.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. From BBC Radio 4. Um, All right, let me finish uh, talking a little bit about a guy that I've been writing about this week. That's Markel Fultz uh, down in Orlando, uh, having a real revival type of year. I mean, people that know Markel's story, number one pick in the draft in 2017, has been plagued by a shoulder injury for the better part of the first two years of his career. He was traded midway through his second season by Philadelphia for – basically nothing. He was a top-20 protected first-round pick, and Jonathan Simmons, plus some second-round capital as well. And he goes to Orlando. He sits out the rest of his second season. He rehabs in the offseason. I'm telling you, Jeremy, he has come back. He is, I think, the best story in the NBA this season. I think there are some good ones. I mean, Luca in Dallas, a great story. Pascal Siakam in Toronto was a great story. But what Markel Fultz is doing in Orlando, I think, is the best story. I mean, he... He was so beat up for those first couple of years by people that thought his problems were more psychological than physical. There were people that thought he should play through that injury. And he's really turned turned the page on all that and turned himself into a really good point guard. I was at the game on Monday. He had 25 points in the win over Brooklyn. That game was tied with like seven minutes to go. He comes back into the game. He scores seven straight points to put the Nets away Almost single-handedly. didn't shoot the ball great against Washington, but he handed out seven assists and the magic one, you know, going away. He is starting to look like the guy that we thought he was going to be when Philadelphia made him the number one pick in the draft. He's 6'4, he can body people, he's physical. And one thing Steve Clifford reminded me of when you know everybody kind of focuses on his shot. Will he develop a jump shot? He had a jump shot. Like he was a 41% three-point shooter when he was playing at Washington. I think he's got a real chance to 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 become that guy. Not just like, you know, 75, 80% of the guy we thought he was gonna be, but a hundred percent of the guy we thought he was gonna be. I mean, this is basically his rookie year. Like this is the first full year he's gonna go through in his entire career. And if this is just the beginning of it, I think year two, year three, year four, they're gonna be great for Markel Fultz. What let me ask you this, as a as somebody that, that watches a lot of college basketball, were you, did you believe that Markel Fultz was, you know, the the next big thing or at least a consensus number one when he came out a couple of years ago?
4: Yeah, so I was bought into the number one thing. I think I probably, it's it's much easier to now relitigate this conversation. Uh, you know, I probably was a little bit more bought in than I than I should have been, um, but, you know, I think everybody, a lot of people felt the same way. I mean, it was definitely the prevailing thought that he was the number one guy, Um you know, I had De'Aaron Fox very, very close with him um, at, at number two in my mind. But, um, you know, that's not really the point. The point being, like, you know, there are probably more warning signs, too, at the time than people thought. I mean, he, he was a good three-point shooter in college, but also, uh, you know, not a good free-throw shooter, which is often can be more indicative of how well a guy is going to shoot uh, long-term. Um, you know, he was super, super high usage at, at Washington, so some of the stats were a little bit inflated. And, like, I'm going to be honest, like, I don't know if I... And I haven't watched him live this year, so I, I don't know for sure how I feel about this, but I, I don't know if I share, like, your your full-on optimism that he is going to be, like, a star star, but I, I am very, very happy for him. Just, just, you know, I think a lot of people are around the NBA just sort of recovering from, uh, you know, the, a weird two years and at least, you know, looking like a viable, uh, you know, guy for them. Um. So, yeah, I'm very curious to see where this goes from here. I mean, 25, you know, obviously uh, on Monday, uh, is probably his best game of the year, uh, and so... Oh, he definitely... T- best game of his career. Say, yeah. Like he was, mm-hmm. that,
3: that was the best game of his career. I mean, one thing that I didn't know about him until I really started to watch him this season, he is really physical. Like, he, this is not some, like, skinny guard that gets pushed around. He's pushing guys around. Like, I, watching that Brooklyn game, he's just going straight through Garrett Temple and Spencer and Dinwiddie. These are big guards, veteran guards, that he is just going through at this stage of his career. And you have to imagine... I mean, this look, even up until the middle of last summer... Markel Fultz couldn't play basketball. Like, he wasn't able to shoot. He was still rehabbing. You give him a full offseason to hit the weights and get that upper body at an NBA level, that's going to add another layer to his game. I mean, Clifford was telling me, saying, like, I mean, look, he's shooting the three. He's not shooting it particularly well. We think he's going to wait until he starts making threes and you really have to run him off that three point line because he's so good at kind of probing the paint getting in there and using that big body he's going to he's going to make an impact now i don't know if he's a superstar like top 5 even top 10 type of point guard but i think he's trending in that direction and you know given his age i mean the guy's 21 years old like <laughs> he came out early and after one season at washington he's 21 so like I I think there's just so much room to grow physically and as a basketball player for Fultz.
4: Yeah, and I, I I'm really curious to see where it goes from here. And, and you know, credit Orlando. I mean, that was the team that really needed to take a chance on something like that. Uh so I don't even count it as a chance. Like, that's not even
3: like is that really even a chance? Like Jonathan Simmons and a top twenty protected first round pick. Like, is that that's not that's that's nothing. That's getting him basically for free. That is a free former number one pick. It, look, it's it's kinda apples and oranges, but it does drive me crazy a little bit when teams aren't willing to have patience. Now, I don't know I don't know for sure if Fultz could have worked out in Philadelphia. I mean, in addition to the physical stuff, there is there would have been so much pressure on him. He he always would have been Markel Fultz's number one pick who the Sixers basically traded Jason Tatum to go and get. That would have been an enormous amount of pressure on a kid that I think might have had a problem dealing with that. But, I mean, you go back years before that. Where would Minnesota be if they had drafted Joel Embiid instead of Andrew Wiggins? Like, I'm watching Michael Porter Jr. play right now. That was the 14th pick in the draft uh, over a year ago. Like, I I don't know if Michael Porter Jr. is going to turn into a great player, but he's certainly better than, what was it, uh, Jerome Robinson, who was drafted a pick before him. Might be even better than Troy Bell, who was drafted a pick after him. I mean, you know, the... I think there's there's no such thing, Jeremy, in today's NBA as a as career-ending injury. It might just take time for guys to get over. But given how young these guys are when they get in the league, why not wait one year, even two years, even three years if you know what you're going to get? That's that to me is just one of the weirdest things about today's NBA.
4: Yeah, well, I, I do I do want to push back a little bit with Orlando because there is I do think all right I do think there is some opportunity cost here. Uh, and like you know, obviously, I would like for him to uh, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, come back and have a really good rest of his career. But I mean, like, he's still not a great free throw shooter. And it's like, I think, you know, while, you know, they're not giving up a lot to take on the chance of developing him, which I think makes sense. I think the risk you run is, you know, maybe he comes close to being a max guy who you have to pay close to a max deal. But then by the time you get him on that type of contract, then he's not ever going to return that type of value, right? Like if, he, if he, he's going to have to score more efficiently. I mean, he has had games where he's really struggled this year. He's had, you know, one of 10, Shooting nights, and you know he is so young. Times on his side, but you know I, I just I do think you know it, it made sense for them to do it. But I, I would also say that it's not like it's like without risk. Like there is some risk of
3: well, no, but look, right? hold on, hold on. W- what is the risk though? Like well, I just said traffic? it.
4: I just said it. I mean, maybe you tie up a hundred million dollars in Marco Fultz, and that screws you for five years right, if he doesn't pan risk, out. Future risk, potential.
3: Right? You're right. You're right. No, I, I'll give you that. Like if if they like they're not going to max him out when his time comes. But like if if they give him an outlandish contract, which yeah, I, I just don't see that happening. I, I think they've got. They've got a very good relationship with Fultz, and they've got a very good relationship with his agent Raymond Brothers. I, I think whatever when the when the time comes, I think they'll find some kind of happy medium there. I hope uh, so for Markel Fultz that protects everybody.
4: I hope so, but I mean, again, if uh, it sounds like you're optimistic about his his future, right? And I'm I'm just saying, if he does hit, if he does become what people wanted him to be. Then you're going to hit a very fine line in terms of how much you need to pay him and how much he's going to actually be able to get, especially in Orlando.
3: You are you are a Markel Fultz hater. Is what I'm, I'm not are. a hater. I'm just like I'm that's... I'm a
4: realist. I'm a realist, and it's it's a small sample size. I know he's young, but I, I also think that they're, you know, I wouldn't say it's like fully there yet, right? And
3: you I, wanted to give DJ Augustine more minutes, is what you want?
4: No, I, that's, I. You are that's not what I'm saying. But <laughs> you know, I just I, I just don't know. I, I'm not I'm not like a believer. I haven't seen enough yet to. Uh, to believe, I don't think it was the wrong move to get him, uh, but I also just, I just think, you know, it, it would be wrong to just be like, this is a total win right now, because, uh, you know, if you look at what he's making now on his deal, whatever he gets next is going to be a raise on that. You know, you know they're going to be able to push for a lot. You know that if Orlando's invested time in him and he's getting close to, you know, looking like the guy that people want him to be, you're going to have to pay him more. That's just how the NBA works. You young guys get paid more than they're worth, and you, a lot of the times they don't live up to that deal, and so. You know Orlando has been in a tough spot for years at point guard so I get why they did it. I'm just saying there's not, it's not like there's like no risk like they could end up stuck in the middle for five more years. So that's all I'm well, saying. I
3: mean look, I, they'll they'll have some they'll have a body of work by the time it comes to have to decide what to pay. I mean they picked up the fourth year option that's 12.3 million. Um that's not a substantial number for a player that's your starting point guard. So you've got like another year to kind of really figure out if Markel Fultz is all the way back, if he's past the injury and if he's worth that type of money. I'd be more concerned if they had to make a – if they had to make it – if he was unrestricted going into this offseason. That would concern me uh, with that. The other point I wanted to make with Fultz, though, is, I mean, the organization you're with matters. The coach you have matters. And, you know, being with Steve Clifford I think is a huge win for Markel Fultz. I mean, Steve Clifford – took over in Charlotte after Kemba Walker's first season. Kemba was a good player as a rookie, but Kemba will be the first one to tell you that he got to where he got in part because of Steve Clifford. I mean, he's, his phrasing, I think, and I wrote it in the story, is like, Steve Clifford took me to another level. So you have a coach who's proven to take a point guard with some flaws. I mean, Kemba undersized at his position, but it's proven... To take a point guard like that and take him to an all NBA level, I think that bodes well for Markel Fultz's future.
4: Yeah, but those are two very, very different players. I, that's all. That's all i will say. Very different, like I mean, apples and oranges <laughs> in terms of style. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. They're
3: they're different. I mean, Kemba wasn't injured; it wasn't coming off all that stuff. But you know, it's it, it, yeah. But, like again, mm-hmm. again, look in a general sense, there's there's a good developmental history with Clifford in sure. The guys yeah, I I, I, I agree with that. I agree that's, with that. That's more the greater point. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we could finish agreeing there after strongly <laughs> disagreeing on the future of Markel Um Jeremy, always appreciate it, man. Thanks for joining me. Look forward to uh, catching up again
4: sometime soon. All right, man. Talk to you later.